For years, I just dreaded going to the dentist. But at Advanced Dentistry, I don't have to. First and foremost, they want you to feel comfortable when you walk in. Like, you'll feel it. Whereas in the past, I might have gone into the dentist and thinking, I might feel some pain at some point. But with IV sedation, it can be something that you don't dread. If you've been avoiding the dentist because of fear, worry, or just not wanting to be judged, you're not alone. Visit NoFearDentist.com to learn how IV sedation can change your life. And welcome to Pod Save the People. On this episode, we have Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris, who is a pediatrician and a leader in understanding the impact of childhood trauma on later health outcomes. Many folks will say, oh, that happened, but he was too little to remember. So I don't think it really affected him. Right? And the science is telling us the exact opposite. And then we have the news with me, Brittany Clinton-Sam, as always. Now, I wanted to talk about stories, is that sometimes, because we're so used to reading stories, uh, we think that those are the only stories that exist, that we completely forget about the importance of the oral tradition. We completely forget about kids who, when they're so young and they've not learned how to write, that they tell stories and pictures. Then when I visit classrooms, especially in the earlier grades, like you can see the teachers who like understand the storytelling ability of their kids versus the teachers who believe that the only stories that can be told and are worthy of being heard are ones that are in a five paragraph essay. And I say that because sometimes we think we're listening, but we're not listening if we think that stories all have to come packaged in one way. And I've been in a lot of rooms where if the packaging of the story isn't the one that you expect or are most used to hearing, then you don't think the story matters. So I challenge you on that as I challenge myself every day. Hey, y'all. It's the news. This is Brittany Packnett at Miss Packetti on all social media. And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter and Instagram. This is DeRay at DeRay, D-R-A-Y on Twitter. And this is Clint Smith back at it at Clint Smith III. <laughs> Welcome back, Clint. So I had a week uh, where I was away at a writing retreat. Um, missed the pod Aww. dearly, but, uh, but I've no doubt that everybody held it down. But when I was away, uh, the World Cup started. Shout out to everybody watching the World Cup. I grew up playing soccer my whole life. Um, it was was and is still in many ways my obsession. And it's interesting because uh, in my house, as is the case in many homes uh, in which black people grew up, for sports in which people don't pay particularly close attention or international sports generally, it's funny because a lot of us opt into the sort of like which team has the most black people uh, frame for who we're going to cheer for. And Imani Perry, who's this Princeton professor, wrote this this essay a few years ago when she was watching the World Cup in South Africa, and I thought that she framed how she decides who she's going to support really well. She says, if an African nation is not playing, then I root for the nation that has been colonized. The caveat being, if the other team is a colonizer that has a majority presence of people of color with roots in formerly colonized states, then I revert to my rooting for the black norm. If the teams are two colonial powers, I root for the team with more people of color. And I think generally this is like, the frame that most folks take into it. My caveat is Mexico and anybody from the global South. Mexico beat Germany the other day. Huge victory. I was super hyped. Um, World Cup is just amazing. So excited for folks to watch. I'm going to be watching. And uh, shout out to all the teams that have the most black people. Shout out to France. France is like watching the African team anyway. Pretty much every game I follow that rule, I'm realizing now, because uh, it's always like Team France, Team Brazil, uh, Nigeria, Senegal. <laughs> <laughs> well, I um, I have not been watching the World Cup uh, because the Carters are my World Cup. I have been watching. I have been watching their new video over and over and over and over and over and over over and over again. And like you, uh, Sam, I am rooting for those black people to win. I am just obsessed with everything is love. I am so thankful that it was dropped in the middle of what was a very stressful weekend. It just brought so much joy and beautiful black imagery in all of these places where black people were never supposed to be, namely the Louvre. And like, oh my God, they shut down the Louvre again. And there are pictures of them from 2014 in there with their family, like just them. And I was like, you knew all along, Beyonce, and we were not prepared. I just was not prepared. So that, that's, that's been the, the most important viewing of my weekend. 
So I want to talk about the Trump administration's policy of separating kids from their families. I know this has been a a huge conversation uh, in the news over the past week or so. I'm going to bring to this conversation some background on what's going on and then uh, where this might be going. So as some of you may know, the Trump administration recently started, its, it launched what it calls the prosecution initiative, which is a policy of separating kids from their parents at the border, even when their parents are coming uh, seeking asylum, which is legal, um, and placing the kids in these what they call shelters, which really look like jails. And many of us have seen images now on social media of kids in cages, many, many kids to a room uh, without you know toys, without any sort of you know, things that kids should be having, basically just put there, left unsupervised and uh, in a very inhumane and traumatic way while their parents are prosecuted uh, for doing things that in many cases are legal, uh, like seeking asylum, uh, just because they cross the border. And an article has come out in the Washington Examiner, which looks at the rate at which this is really accelerating. And what they find is that there are 250 children uh, each day that the Department of Health and Human Services, uh, which receives these kids from Border Patrol, receives. So 250 kids a day. And what they estimate is that by the end of August, there could be as many as 30,000 children held by the Department of Human Services, potentially in these same conditions that I spoke about. And if those trends persist, uh, we could be looking at uh, as many as 250,000 or more uh, kids uh, taken by Health and Human Services in the next three years. So just to give you a sense of the scale at which this is happening, those are some of the numbers of kids alone. That does not include the family members uh, who are being prosecuted and held. And I know we've talked in the past about the 34,000 person uh, detainee quota uh, for immigration detention, uh, which continues to be maintained. But this would be on top of all of that. I just want to get a couple of things straight that I think should be able to go without being said. And yet here we are, because in addition to what you just shared, Sam, we have heard from the Department of Homeland Security and Secretary Nielsen that there is no such policy. And we have heard from folks in the administration that they are uncomfortable with the accurate language that the media is using to describe where these young people are being detained as cages. So let's just get a few things straight. These young people who are being described as unaccompanied minors are being put in what can only be described as cages. They have fences and chain links and locks. Those are cages. Anything else is a lie. Then we know that these young people are only unaccompanied minors because they are, in fact, being separated from their families at the border. In other words, they wouldn't be unaccompanied minors if their families weren't being separated. These things should be obvious, but unfortunately, in this day and age, they're not. And it's amazing how many times we watch this administration create a crisis that they then want credit for solving. Then we know that despite what Secretary Nielsen said, that this is indeed the policy of this administration. Why? Because this administration has made the choice to prosecute anybody who crosses that border, irrespective of the reason. Other administrations did not make that choice. Because they require the DOJ to step up their prosecutions of anybody and everybody who crosses that border, and let's be clear, not the Canadian border, the U.S.-Mexican border, those folks then have to go to jail. Because children can't go to jail, they are then separated from their parents and their families. This is why it is absolutely the policy of this administration to be separating these families. It's not the Democrats, as Trump wants to blame. It actually is a policy that exists, even though Secretary Nielsen wants to convince us that it's not. What really gets my goat is that these folks who are in support of and helped create this policy, sat there and publicly celebrated Father's Day yesterday. Well, there are fathers that were so distraught over being separated from their children that supposedly at least one of them died by suicide while in custody. Um, and on top of it all, we know that Jeff Sessions had the nerve 
to quote the good book, the Bible, to justify these actions. And then on top of it, they're trying to gaslight us and tell us that it's not happening. This is exactly how fascism works. They tell you that what's happening isn't in fact happening, and that if it is, that the common belief structure that we should all have indeed does support it. The last thing I'll say is this. Look, this is a traditional to America. The separating of families happened to indigenous people, black people, Asian folks, and lots of marginalized communities across this country. Um, it is high time for that tradition to end. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about this. And in my world and, and with so many of my friends and my colleagues and, and, and people who I love and care about, so we're all distraught. We're all overwhelmed. We're all outraged by so many of the images that we're seeing, by by the stories that we're seeing about mothers who are literally getting to the border, being told that their children are going to be taken away to get a bath. And then they're like, where, 5, 10, 15, 30 minutes later, they're like, where is my child? And they say, oh, you won't be seeing your child anytime soon. Like, can you imagine? Can you imagine having your child taken away from you under the pretense of having them cleaned? Again, this is not something that it relies on being a parent, like because I think that we need to move away from like, oh, because I'm a parent or, oh, because, you know, the same way in, in the context of feminism and issues of sexual assault, the same way that, you know, the frame should be should exist beyond the context of, uh, you know, imagine your wife or your mother or your sister. Right. It's part of this is human decency. And as someone who is the parent of a one year old, I, I literally cannot bring myself to fathom what it would feel like to have my child taken away from me and to not know where they are, who they're with, or when I will see them again. I just, I can't, it, it, it evokes a rage that is, that I can't even begin to describe. And with that said, one of the things that I'm also thinking about, and I was talking about this the other day, is how for some, for me and so many of us, these images uh, elicit outrage but like the very real reality that we need to keep in mind is that for a lot of people in this country, like not a small amount of people, like a large amount of people in this country, these images are exciting. They are emboldening. They are exactly what they voted for. They're exactly what they wanted to see. And I think sometimes we have this idea that like, oh, if we show these images of children in cages, you know, crying, that that is going to elicit sympathy and outrage from everyone. Um, but the reality is that like, that is exactly what some people in this country voted for. That's exactly what we want. They want to see. And I think it's important for us to, to always remind ourselves of that because otherwise we can fall into the trap of thinking that everybody is, is experiencing this horrific thing in the same way as us. When, when the reality is that there are a lot of people who, who think that this is exactly what should be happening and, um, that, that the lives of, of brown children and, and black children and and any group of children on the margins is uh, is secondary to their notions of of who should or shouldn't be in this country. One of the things to remember is that ICE is what people talk about the most. ICE arrests adults. We talked about this in the pod with an interview about Suffolk County, I don't know, four or five episodes ago. Now, ORR, the Office of Refugee Resettlement, is actually the part of the federal government that detains young people because they're not arrested, really. They are detained by ORR, which is a different type of arrest. And what's important to also know is that they are not necessarily held in like detention facilities on behalf of the government, but they are put in foster care and group homes. And they can't leave them, so they are essentially detention facilities, but they don't, they're not supposed to function and feel like detention facilities because there's a recognition that they're young. Now, what I wanted to talk about today is the industry that has been spawned because of this. So there's one big contractor named MVM that's Virginia-based. There's another big contractor, General Dynamics. It's the third largest federal contractor by dollar amount uh, of the federal government at $15 billion, General Dynamics. And both of them, since the detention of young people has skyrocketed, is that they have uh, both sought additional funding and they've increased postings for jobs because this is a boom to business. So MBM is recruiting more staff members to help with the influx of kids. They're recruiting youth care workers. They're recruiting people to make child advocacy programs. General Dynamics is recruiting data entry positions specifically around tracking young people, policy analysts around all the stuff that's happening with the young people being detained. And then there's even a job posting for somebody to help redact files pertaining to young people. 
and what is important to note about this is like a there's always money involved with these things like this is not a dollar amount neutral decision that there are people who are going to be billionaires off of the detention of young people. And the second is I remember that these uh, these contractors literally have no experience working with young people, is that they are security contractors. They, like, provide arms. They provide protection for the federal government. They have huge contracts with the CIA and other federal agencies around security. They don't know anything about young people. And the thing about RR is that because they put young people in foster care and group homes, there literally are not enough foster care parents in the country for general foster care. And there aren't actually enough group homes either. So there are contractors that are going to help create space. And the contractors are likely going to be national security contractors, not people who know anything about kids. My news is actually related, especially to what you just shared, DeRay, about where young people um, who are being stripped from their families at the border and young people across the country who are in need of care and support are actually receiving it. And so recently HuffPost reported on the fact that foster care and adoption agencies that actually shun LGBTQ parents and foster care parents are getting millions of dollars from taxpayers at the state level. So essentially states pay into these agencies in order to be able to serve the young people who are in the foster care system. Two quick examples, a place called Miracle Hill Ministries in South Carolina, their website actually declares that foster parents must, quote, have a lifestyle that is free of sexual sin, whatever that means. And they list pornographic materials, homosexuality, and extramarital relationships among those sins. This year, they've already received more than $4.6 million, both from the federal government and the state government, according to paperwork in South Carolina, and they've recruited about 15% of foster homes in the state. In a place uh, in Michigan called St. Vincent Catholic Charities, they've received at least $10.6 million from the federal and state government for foster care payments over a two-year period. And at St. Vincent, they say they cannot provide written recommendations and endorsements of unmarried or same-sex couples. And so these are just two examples of all of the ways in which our funds are being used to discriminate. I'm feeling like Cardi B. I want a receipt for where all my tax dollars are going because right now I'm feeling like they're being used in a lot of ways that I absolutely do not see uh, fit to have them being used. There are on any given day 428,000 children in foster care. And as you said, DeRay, there are already not enough foster care homes, foster care parents, or adoptive parents. So so who are we to tell loving people who want to commit to helping raise children that they did not give birth to, that they are prevented from it simply because of who they love? I'm absolutely disgusted by this. And given the amount of immigrant children who are being taken from their families, we're probably going to see a spike um, in the amount of kids needing these supports and services. And that number of young people in foster care has already been growing and was already growing before families were being separated. And so this is really at a crisis point. Um, moreover, this really makes me question not only what is happening to the LGBTQ parent, potential parents who are being shunned, but LGBTQ youth that are in the foster care system. Um, how are they being told that they are valuable, that they are loved, that they matter? As a Christian person, as a, as a thinking person, as a loving and feeling person, this kind of practice is not only deeply discriminatory, it is not Christ-like, it is not righteous, it is not loving, um, and it should be against the law in absolutely every state for corporations, organizations, nonprofits to be using the shield of religion to discriminate against people. That is why the Supreme Court case about the cake was not about the cake at all. It was about actually protecting people and their rights. You know, in reading this article, Brittany, one of the things that I'm struck with is the extent to which we still don't know for many of these agencies, the extent to which they deny uh, families the ability to uh, adopt a child uh, and the and which ones, right? So it seemed in reading through it that they were sort of cold calling places uh, and seeing what their policy was. And many of the folks at these places didn't even, they gave conflicting and contradictory answers. And so, you know, I'm curious about the landscape nationwide uh, and whether or not this, this project has been done in, in a 
you know, more comprehensive way to actually see, you know, where exactly are these places all across the country? To what extent do they discriminate against folks? How much money are they receiving? And then with that information, what we could then do is uh, begin organizing around defunding those particular agencies, making sure that funds are actually going to uh, folks who are treating families equally, are giving children at these agencies the opportunity to be adopted uh, and not denying folks based on their own discriminatory positions toward LGBTQ individuals. Two things that I'd add. One is if you just Google legislation affecting LGBT rights across the country, the ACLU actually updates every Monday uh, legislation around the country that's impacting the lives of people. Um, in the LGBT community, and a majority of states right now allow discrimination in employment, housing, and public accommodations. And what's really great about their site is that it breaks it up by subject or by topic. So, like, you can see all the adoption and foster care bills that are being introduced, the marriage-related exemptions, the schools and student organization exemptions around funding, the bills preempting local protections that would make it illegal for, like, cities to actually protect the lives of LGBTQ at people from being discriminated against at the state bills. Another section is bills preempting local protections where the state would prevent cities from allowing or creating non-discrimination clauses. And then uh, it shows you the good things too, like the comprehensive protections. What I will say is that, you know, people don't realize like how insidious homophobia and transphobia and all of these things show up in like a day to day. So we think about it with uh, not being allowed to participate in a part of civic life, like being able to adopt, which is uh, your news, Brittany. And then you think about like what it means to be in the workplace when you can't go to a bathroom that recognizes like your gender identity or you are in the workplace and people can say blatantly homophobic things. And it's just like another day at work and like you have no protection uh, to be safe in those places and as somebody who's gay like I think about that all the time I've been in a lot of places where like it is just homophobic and it's also just okay like there's not really a rule against it or there's no sort of legal protection so you just hunker down and you push through the day and like nobody should have to live in a world where that is what you do so I'm hopeful there are about 20 states that provide some sort of protection uh, but 20 is not 50 and we have a long way to go Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere, there's more to come. Ashley's Memorial Day mattress sale is going on now. Save big on select adjustable mattress sets, up to $1,200 on Beautyrest Black, up to $800 on Purple, and up to $500 on Tempur-Pedic. Plus, get 72-month special financing with select in-store mattress purchases made with your Ashley Advantage Synchrony credit card between May 14th and June 3rd. Visit your local Ashley store or ashley.com for better sleep and savings. Only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. Minimum monthly payments required. No minimum purchase required. See store for details. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. So my news this week comes from uh, Jamel Bowie over at Slate, and he's been writing about this sort of seemingly renewed interest in the Enlightenment by a lot of conservative writers and thinkers. Uh, and the Enlightenment, as we know, is the sort of 17th and 18th century European movement that emphasizes reason and individualism and um, was the sort of, uh, you know, the golden age of, of intellectual reasoning. And these folks include the, the sort of People who are embracing a renewed interest in it in our sort of current political moment uh, include Jordan Peterson, Steven Pinker, who just wrote a book about this, Jonah Goldberg, who similarly wrote a book about this. And the problem is not praising the Enlightenment, but the thing is that in, in these folks' conception of the Enlightenment, it's this uncomplicated, straightforward story of human progress uh, that has made a more prosperous, more fair, and more just world. But what a lot of these folks forget is that the Enlightenment also played a central role in creating the hierarchy that's responsible for our modern racial caste system, right? And so this is not to say that notions of difference and oppression based on physical differences didn't exist before the Enlightenment, but it is to say that the Enlightenment helped to create 
the caste-based racial taxonomy that we're all familiar with today, right? So for example, Johann Friedrich Blumenbach, I, I think I pronounced it right, in, in this like hugely influential 1776 volume called On Natural Varieties of Mankind, um, talked about like five divisions of humanity with Caucasians at the top and Africans and indigenous at the bottom. And that was used by folks like Thomas Jefferson and others to like legitimize uh, the slave trade and to legitimize the low status of um, Africans as a means of enslaving them, the low status of indigenous folks as a means of uh, wiping them out and killing them. Uh, similarly, Immanuel Kant, uh, who's uh, an influential philosopher that people all sort of encounter in their philosophy 101 class, he said, quote, humanity exists in its greatest perfection in the white race. The yellow Indians have a smaller amount of talent. The Negroes are lower and the lowest are the part of the American people. And so, you know, these are folks, you know, whether it's Kant or John Locke or Blumenbach, these are folks who whose rationalization and, and scientific legitimation of race, um, even when it wasn't true, provided the sort of intellectual fuel that ultimately led to enhanced justifications and more widespread justifications of slavery. And I think what this reflects to me is, you know, we talk all the time on podcasts about how it's important to hold sort of multiple truths at once, right? It is important to recognize that Thomas Jefferson was a brilliant man and that he also enslaved his children. It is important to recognize that Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation and that for most of his life, he uh, tried to get black people to leave uh, the U.S. to go to South America because, as he talks about in his Lincoln-Douglas debates, he didn't believe that black people uh, were equal to white people and that they uh, didn't possess the same emotional or intellectual capacity to live alongside their white counterparts, right? So the thing is that we have to hold all of these things at once. The Enlightenment was great and and brought about a lot of forward progress with regard to human civilization, but at the same time also was created as a means to legitimize and justify the existence of a very real racial caste system. And I think any attempt to bring up the Enlightenment without holding those complicated truths at the same time is, is really doing a disservice. This is why only as coordinated um, and thoughtful and intentional an effort to dismantle racism will do, because the creation of it um, and of our modern, not just concepts of race and racism, but practices according to it, as you've shared, Sam, come from a place. They didn't come up out of thin air. They were created, they were designed, they were built to function exactly as they are. Uh, and just because the manifestations of it are different than they once were doesn't make them any less damaging. And that's part of the reason why, you know, it's it's so fascinating because people will criticize modern movements for justice by saying, you know, you haven't you haven't fixed it yet. Uh, and it's like it literally took us centuries to get here. Um, and so the idea that overnight or in a year or two, we are going to have ended anti-blackness or ended racism or ended discrimination, it shows a real misunderstanding of exactly how they were developed in the first place and why they were developed in the first place. They were developed to justify systems that benefited certain people. Thus far, those same class and groups of people are still receiving benefit and therefore they have no interest in ending those systems or changing um, our cultural understanding of race and racism. And so um, that is why the, the organizing and the disciplined action that we continue to take is so, so important. Yeah, I just say this is also just a reminder that the ideas matter and that the stories we tell matter and that uh, we often are raised to believe that the best idea wins. But what is true is that the idea that is beat into our heads that we're exposed to over and over, that that is the idea that wins. And when you think about the history of race, it's like this idea is so pernicious. The idea of racism and white supremacy is just an idea. And uh, Clint, what your article makes me think about, what the history of the Enlightenment makes me think about, is that there was a time before this. Nobody's suggesting that like the idea of race-based politics like just emerged magically during the Enlightenment, but it was codified in a way that is unique and special, which is what you were saying and what the article talks about. But there was a time before that, and I want to believe that there's a, a time after this current moment that like there's a way to offer a new set of ideas and stories and beliefs that get translated into practices in institutions that actually benefit all people and not just one subset of people. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere, there's more to come. 
Ashley's Memorial Day sale is going on now. Shop our biggest selection of hot buys, cool deals, or shop limited time savings on new summer spaces. Plus, get 72-month special financing on select in-store mattress purchases made with your Ashley Advantage Synchrony credit card between May 14th and June 3rd. Whether you're redecorating indoors or rethinking your outdoor space, save big on this season's trending styles. Only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. Minimum monthly payments required. No minimum purchase required. See store for details. Your home is your place of peace. It's clean. It's welcoming. <sighs> and it's definitely not crawling with invading insects if you use Ortho Home Defense Max. Use it indoors on non-porous surfaces to treat and prevent cockroaches, spiders, and ants for up to 12 months. So your home can stay your place of peace, your work-from-home office, and your family's headquarters. Kill bugs inside, keep bugs outside, and love your home. Visit ortho.com for more. Okay, so my news is about Zimbardo. So famous uh, Stanford prison experiment. It is a canonical experiment in, um, in psychology and sociology. And there's a new expose published on Medium, the platform Medium. And the article is called The Lifespan of a Lie. You should go read it. It's fascinating. Where it essentially exposes that the guards were coached to be cruel. They actually have audio recording of uh, some of this where they talk about the prisoners like thinking about it as a game. Or the guards who are now older talking about it as like a part of improv and not actually leading to the conclusions that the study seemed to suggest, which was that in the right conditions, people could be transformed to be as cruel as the circumstances required. And when you look at this, the expose on the study, it seems like that actually is falling apart, that it was a performance that people had certain motives about why they were cruel or why they weren't cruel, why they wanted to get out of the experiment or not. What's interesting is that Zimbardo is still alive, so I think that is like a fascinating part of this because the author talks about reaching out to him for a quote and he wouldn't give a quote. And then when they were like, well, we have some transcripts, then he was like, oh, I think you just misunderstood it. So you should read the whole expose. It's called The Lifespan of a Lie. But, you know, we've covered on the pod before about the word gap study, which has had a huge influence on literacy in this country or like the, st- the implementation of literacy programs also being flawed is that there are a number of canonical uh, studies that only now are are being showed to be deeply flawed. And I think about, and you know, Sam, maybe you'll talk about this, but I think about that big study that came out about how police violence wasn't linked to race, made like a big splash. And it was like, well, your methodology is like sort of wild and this is not peer reviewed, doesn't make a lot of sense, but it stuck for people. And we have a collective responsibility to make sure that these studies that that really do shift not only the public conversation, but like whole fields of study that they have to be right or like be conclusive or have some correlation that makes sense. So I was pretty shocked to read uh, the challenge to this study and to see that so many other studies in psychology have actually been challenged recently. I will say to, to speak to what you said, DeRay, on, on the study on policing, you know, this is, it's clear that, you know, that if the core foundational studies that everybody knows are now being debunked in so many different fields, um, we have to really interrogate the ways in which we were convinced that they were true and the burden of proof that oftentimes uh, is differential depending on whether it confirms uh, or sort of diverges from common expectations. So, you know, with the word gap study, there was this sort of bias and this uh, assumption that uh, you know low-income families were not doing the right thing by their kids, and that sort of animated this push to accept the findings that they weren't exposing their kids to thirty million words compared to you know higher uh, income folks. I think that's also true when you think about issues of policing, where you know, as you said, Duray, there was a study on. Uh, by Roland Fryer, Harvard professor, uh, about police shootings. And he looked at data on Houston Police Department uh, and concluded that there wasn't racial bias in police shootings. And that sort of one finding uh, then was profiled in the New York Times and became this huge 
sort of counterpoint to a whole literature of uh, work that not only we had done, but many other folks had done from the Center for Policing Equity to you know, professors in, at Columbia University and other universities that found that indeed there, were, there was racial bias in police shootings. Um, but that one study, which wasn't even peer reviewed, uh, sort of became the thing that everybody would cite to try to counter the existing literature. And then, you know, in the end, it only really looked at, you know, Houston Police Department's uh, data, and there are a whole range of other flaws with their methodology uh, that we could go into detail some other time. Um, but we have to be careful when looking at, at, at research to really examine the methodology to make sure uh, that it, we're not just agreeing with it and, and accepting it because it supports our existing biases or assumptions and that we're actually interrogating how they got to their findings uh, so that we can be clear about you know where to move forward in terms of solutions. And you know, to your point, Sam, I feel like we're at a, a real point of, of cultural reckoning on so many things. You know, the Me Too movement is a cultural reckoning of the kind of behavior and really hypersexualized and sexually dangerous culture that we had just accepted uh, in so many spaces from Hollywood to corporate America to wage earning spaces. We're clearly having a reckoning about the values of this country and what we actually stand for in modern times. Uh, I say that not at all to suggest that America was perfect prior to this administration, but rather to say that we're seeing such an extreme abdication of moral responsibility in our current lifetimes right now um, that is really calling all of us to the carpet about what we will and won't stand for. Similarly, I think that there's a real reckoning happening in the world of academia and research um, and recognizing that it's not just about putting out ideas um, and, and trying to make the biggest splash, but that you actually have to be responsible and that that responsibility comes not only uh, with morality, but with considerations of equity, considerations of identity, considerations of marginalization, and that the things that we just accepted to be true may very well not be. Um, and so I'm hoping that in all of these industries and across all of these spaces, we're not just um, learning one lesson or shifting one practice, but that we're actually taking the time to do the full overhaul that's necessary. If, if we think about things in a government context, it's not just about getting rid of this person. It's about gerrymandering. It's about um, more people of color and women running for office. It is about um, making sure that people are not disenfranchised from their vote. There are so many ways in which we have to actually adjust the systems as they are in order to create the world as it should be. And so I'm hopeful that in the world of research and academia, we see similar overhauls and shifts to prevent this kind of problematic practice from happening in the future. Psychology is really in the midst of like an existential crisis in some ways, because these theories have continued to be debunked um, and, and or diminished as rigorous replication attempts have um, have become more frequent and and also the sort of incentive system of psychology is is pretty backwards because psychologists are now realizing that it's more likely that a false positive will make it through publication than inconclusive results will and they've realized that experimental methods commonly used just a few years ago are now no longer rigorous enough so you have you know so many psychological studies that became the bedrock upon which uh, public discourse and public policy were were founded, and then we come to realize that the the actual empirics and methodologies that these studies were conducted with are not very rigorous. To you know, at best, not very rigorous. At worst, um, purposefully misleading. And and this is you know, with these small sample sizes and false positives, and you know, this is really a moment of reckoning for for an entire field. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see uh, to see how they navigate it and to see how we continue to attempt to replicate and subsequently unlearn so many of the lessons that we were, we were taught about um, what the world looks like and, and why certain things happen. That's the news. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. Sofas, recliners, love seats. Everything is better in leather. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley, where bold meets durable. And wait a minute, who's been finger painting on the couch again? That's okay. Leather is easy to clean. The new leather collection at Ashley is built with the durability you need for the whole family. Yes, pets too. Luxury is meant to be livable. 
Shop chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. For over 130 years, McCormick has helped you make mom's lasagna to keep her secret recipe alive. Take over taco night. No matter how chaotic your day is. Conquer the bake sale, even if you get to it last minute. And craft the perfect Sunday brunch when it's not even Sunday. Because with McCormick by your side, it's going to be great. And now my conversation with Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris, a pediatrician and the founder and CEO of the Center for Youth Wellness. Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris, thanks so much for joining us today on Pate of the People. Thank you for having me. Now, I'm excited to talk to you because not too long ago, I tweeted about the ACEs study because I was trying to understand sort of where the study is today, given that it was so long ago, uh, and wanted to just like try and round out the conversation about childhood trauma, which is why uh, we wanted to make sure we had this conversation with you. Now, for people that don't know anything about the ACEs study, can you give us like a brief, like what is what with the ACEs study? Yeah, sure. So the ACEs study is something that everyone should know about. It was a little, it was mind blowing for me when I, when I read about it. I couldn't believe that I hadn't learned about it before. Um, but it was a, a really big, uh, study that was done by the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and Kaiser Permanente, a big, um, you know, one of the major healthcare companies, uh, in the U.S. And, and what they did was they asked 17 and a half thousand adults about their histories of 10 categories of adverse childhood experiences. And these include physical, emotional, and sexual abuse, physical and emotional neglect, or growing up in a household where a parent was mentally ill, substance dependent, incarcerated, where there was parental separation or divorce, or domestic violence. So those were the 10 ACEs that they uh, looked at in their study. And then they correlated uh, the scores, you know, that, that folks had on this, on this ACE test with their health outcomes. And what they saw was pretty, um, astounding. The, the kind of two big things that really defied common wisdom was one was that ACEs were incredibly common. So two thirds of folks had experienced at least one ACE and one in eight folks had experienced four or more ACEs. And, you know, this wasn't the community that I serve, right? Like, this wasn't low-income black and brown folks. This was a population that was 70% Caucasian, 70% college-educated. They were all privately insured, right? Um, and so what that did was it just kind of defied common wisdom that this only happens to certain people or in certain communities. And the second piece that they found was that there was what they call a dose-response relationship, meaning the higher the number of ACEs, the greater the risk for not just some of the things that you would expect in terms of mental health problems or substance dependence or other issues, but also, you know, really common chronic diseases like heart disease, cancer, chronic lung disease, uh, asthma, diabetes, Alzheimer's. And so that, again, was... um it just defied what we thought we knew about the long-term impacts of childhood adversity. When I saw the original ACEs study, one of the things that concerned me, and I think this is actually what I tweeted, is that I didn't see an analysis of race and income. Like it mm -hmm. wasn't, that that didn't seem to be present in the original study, but I think that it's been updated since. So I wanted, since you're an expert, I wanted to ask you, do we know about how trauma impacts communities differently by demographics? Yes. So, well, we know more than we did when the a study was originally published two decades ago, right? So what we now understand that the, the, the biological mechanism, and this is where all of my research and interest has um, come in, is like, how does that happen? How is it that if you're exposed to adversity in childhood, that it, you know, way increases your risk for heart disease, right? And what we now understand that the, the biological mechanism by which this happens is something, uh, is, is a condition called toxic stress, which is that when you're exposed to stressful or traumatic situations, 
it activates our body's biological stress response, our fight or flight response. And that's good, right? Like that is, you, you know, your body releases stress hormones like adrenaline and cortisol. And, and all of this is supposed to, you know, save your life, uh, from a mortal threat, right? And that's good. But if it's activated too frequently, then these systems that are supposed to be adaptive or helpful, they lose their ability to regulate it th- themselves normally, right? Like we, we lose the normal regulation of that system and it goes from being, um, adaptive or helpful to maladaptive or harmful, right? So you see too much stress hormones and, you know, uh, long-term impacts on the de- children's developing brains uh, and their bodies. And what we now understand is that this biological response, in absence of adequate buffering, because the good news is that we can buffer this response with uh, a, a loving, caring, nurturing caregiver, right? Um, but uh, that is the mechanism by which threat, right, um, when it's not adequately buffered, leads to long-term harm. And whether that threat is the threat of, um, you know, a parent who's mentally ill or substance dependent, or it's the threat of, um, you know, uh, being victimized on the basis of your race or some other reason, the biological mechanism is the same. So we, we now recognize that exposure to racism can be a risk factor for developing this toxic stress response. I, I am uh, torn might not be the right word, but when people either respond to this study one of two ways, either they sort of double down on sort of treating and servicing the people who've experienced trauma, right? Mm-hmm. Or they double down on making sure that fewer people ever experience trauma in the first place. Yes. What's the right sort of dosage of both? And I and I ask because I've only ever spoken to people who like put all the eggs in one of the buckets. Either people are like, we're going to make wellness programs in all the schools, and that's like their way of dealing with the trauma that kids have already experienced. Or there are people who are like trying to work on these underlying societal issues like poverty, access to resources so that kids never have to experience a trauma in the first place. Like what is the the suite of solutions here? You know, as a as a public health person, one of the things that we look at are examples um, in which we've done this in with other health conditions, right? So we've looked at a lot of them. We've looked at um, lead poisoning, for example, is a great example. So, you know, when we figured out that lead was toxic to children's brains, in the same way that trauma is is toxic uh, to children's brains. What we did was, on the one hand, we had to figure out how to treat lead poisoning. Doctors had to figure out how to, you know, pull the lead out of the blood of children who were coming in having seizures or having, you know, severe manifestations. And at the same time, doctors were also on the forefront of sounding the alarm and leading the charge to say, hey, guys, we got to get lead out of paint. We got to get it out of pipes. We got to get it out of, yeah, you know, pencils and gasoline, right? Because these environmental sources of lead are toxic to our children, and that's leading to the problem in the, in the first place. So it's definitely both and. And the challenge is that we don't have all the solutions in front of us um, right now. But one of the uh, a couple of solutions that we absolutely need for this public health movement to address adverse childhood experiences and toxic stress are number one, we need to raise national awareness. Every single person needs to know about this issue because for many folks, and tell me if I'm wrong here, many folks will say, oh, that happened, but he was too little to remember. So I don't think it really affected right. him, right? Right. And the science is telling us the exact opposite, that that really little kids have very, very high rates of brain development. And when they're exposed to these uh, to high doses of adversity, it, it really does lasting harm. You're right. There are people who say like, oh, they're too young to remember, da, da, da. And it's like they are misreading the lack of language that young people have for the lack of impact that it had, you know, like just because the three-year-old can't 
talk to you about it doesn't mean that like it is not having an impact and it feels like that's what you're saying, which I think is an incredible point to note. Yes, that's exactly right. The reason we're understanding this and a, and a big part of what's happened in the two decades since this research was published is that we also have a lot more um, scientific ability to detect what's happening with kids, right? So there's, you know, amazing research that's happening in, uh, in Washington state where they're, you know, uh, we ha- can measure like kids, you know, function and, and, and brain processing when they're hearing, for example, folks who are, you know, arguing angrily, right? Like, kid, you know, a lot of folks think, oh, kids don't, don't get it. And, and what we can see is changes in the brain circuits for, of kids when they're, when they're even being exposed to that. Right. And so that's another myth that it helps us uh, debunk. Right. Which is the concept that if I didn't physically lay hands on the child, that I'm not hurting them. And what can people do? So people listening to this are like, I get it. It makes sense. Like, what is there anything that people can do where they are? It starts at home. Right. No, get to know your ACE score. Our center uh, launched a website called StressHealth.org, where folks can go online and they can take their own ACE score, and they can also, you know, do the ACE score for their kids and, and learn about what they can do to support their kids. But really, right, when we recognize that adverse childhood experiences lead to an overactive stress response, then that's something that any one of us can really look at and say, hmm. Let me just take my own temperature here. Like, how's my stress response doing? Does it does it feel healthy or is it in a place where maybe it's a little overactive? Or in what situations is my stress response overactive, right? And one of the things that I talk about in my book is that the research um, shows that um, sleep, exercise, nutrition, mindfulness, mental health, and healthy relationships – all reduce stress hormones, reduce inflammation, and enhance neuroplasticity, right? And and these things actually um, make a difference in improving our health and helping people recover from an overactive stress response. Well, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. We consider you a friend of the pod and can't wait to get another update. Thank you so much. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Make sure that you tune back in on Tuesday and tell a friend and rate us on iTunes. Thanks. People think the new fresh fragrances from Glade are fresher than fresh, like artist Priscilla. This smells like houses in the Hampton Champagne toast down in Brazil. Smells like anything you think could happen probably will. Explore the new Glade Fresh Collection today. Are you an annoying coworker? Sending emails when everyone else is sleeping? Do they ask, how do you sleep at night? Then you should go to Mattress Firm. They have knowledgeable sleep experts that can help you find a better bed, like a Tempur-Pedic. It has technology to keep you cool at night, meaning anyone, even people like you, can sleep. Get matched at Mattress Firm. Sleep at night. Restrictions apply. See store or website for details.